How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's Sunday, December 24, and it's a special Christmas Eve edition of the weekend show where we take a look back at some of the most powerful interviews and conversations that I have had with some of the smartest people in America. And we're going to start by looking back at a conversation from just a few weeks ago with the political historian Heather Cox Richardson. Something that you wrote in your book, Democracy Awakening notes on the state of America. You said the U.S. is teetering on the brink of authoritarianism. And you asked the question, how did this happen? I, I have a question to you, which I'd like you to you know, weave into that, which is that do people know that they are being sucked into a, a potential authoritarian future in the United States? Great question, because I think what we are seeing right now in this moment is people waking up to realize it's happening. So I think that as in the past, what happened in the years between, well, 19, the 1950s, but let's say 1981 with the arrival of Ronald Reagan in the White House, is the, the gradual erosion of democracy quite deliberately for a, a certain group of people to take power over the country. And it happened so slowly and it happened in such subtle ways that I think people didn't wake up to what was happening. So there's a real parallel there to the 1850s, by the way. But with the arrival of Donald Trump on the political scene and with the, the ways in which he tried to pervert democracy then and increasingly throughout his term and then after his term um, really have made inroads on the institutions of American democracy, I think people really are waking up to it. The question is whether we have woken up in time. When you talk about Donald Trump, you know, perverting the law and, and the course of history, people that support him will turn you off. They'll be like, she's a snowflake. <laughs> she, she doesn't know what she's talking about. That the, the polarization is such now that there isn't even a, a common political discourse to be had. It's like, nope, I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I've always been very interested in how we can kind of recapture people to understand that they're voting against their own interests and that democracy is something that serves everybody. So one of the things that scholars of language, uh, of whom I would count myself, talk about is that you have to be very careful not to work within the same box that your opponents do. So indeed, if you go to somebody and say, well, you know, Donald Trump sucks because he did this, then what you've done is you've accepted the terms of the debate by saying that we're only going to talk about the terms that, that the, the radical right have set out. One of the things I think it's really important when we talk about American democracy and this moment in American democracy is recognize the longer patterns of it. So to be able not to say... Um, I'm against book banning. And we're going to talk, drill down about what book banning means in this particular school district.
perfect. But rather, if you look at the recent elections, the recent November elections, what you see is people who managed to replace Moms for Liberty candidates for school board elections, for example, or who managed to get rid of people who were operating on platforms that called for attacks on trans children, things like that. What they did was not to argue it on those terms, but to argue it on the terms of in this country, we believe in the free exchange of ideas. We believe in public schools where experts get to have a say in the way our children are informed and where where parents who care about ideas get to make sure that they're the ones who choose what their children are reading, not somebody from another state or another town that is being informed on ways to, to be aggressive by Moms for Liberty, So, which is a very carefully named thing. So one of the things that I've really worked to do is to regain a national discourse that is based in American traditions and American political traditions, beginning with the Declaration of Independence. And that, of course, has really deep traditional and uh, political roots in the sense that that's exactly how Abraham Lincoln managed to take uh, a group of voters who were exclusively white and propertied. Uh, and men and make them realize that they had to stand against the spread of human enslavement of black Americans and women and children, people that they normally you, you would not normally associate as being big issues for them. He managed to convince them that rather than looking at that issue the same way the elite enslavers did. They needed to look at the issue as a larger trajectory of what it means to be an American. And when you do that, um, you know, we talk nowadays, for example, as you just did, about how divided Americans are, but they're really not. If you look at the polls, we agree in extraordinary numbers on basic common sense gun safety legislation. We agree in huge numbers on the right to bodily autonomy and the right to reproductive health care. You know, we agree overwhelmingly on the need for education. We agree overwhelmingly on the need for legislation to regulate business, for example. We agree in really high numbers on the idea that taxes should fall more heavily on corporations and on the very wealthy. And these are not radical positions at all. These are mainstream American positions, but they have been perverted, as I say, by a very few politicians who are now radical right extremists who want to impose on the rest of us either their vision of Christian nationalism or simply want to take all the goodies into their own hands, which is to get extraordinarily wealthy, as they have done since 1981. I, like you, probably don't fit into any kind of political box and i think that that's something you know i'm kind of proud of but it doesn't play well here in america i've discovered people are very keen to compartmentalize us and and give us a label um maybe we should join no labels and then we would have no label but again probably wouldn't work but my my point really is that you know you're so right and i've been saying this we're all the same we all have the same desires the needs to be to be held and loved and understood and listened to these things are really important, part of humanity, and, and they will find parallels in politics. But representation is the issue, isn't it? The people that are in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, they are not representing the majority proportionately, and their extremist views now have started out as fringe and have now come very much into the centre. Well, absolutely. Um, but... I, when you, when the first thing you said is people are eager to put labels on us. And I think the word people there is doing a lot of work. Because, of course, if you look at how uh, voters, for example, who are different than the American people, of course, 
have sorted themselves. In fact, many people identify as independents. Now, pol political scientists will tell you that that's a bit of a misnomer because that generally just means they don't want to admit that they lean one way or the other. But it is striking. And one of the things that that always jumps out to me is the the need of politicians who are concerned about their majorities to uh, not only identify their own followers, but crucially to identify their opponents in a negative light. And that, of course, you can see as part of a deliberate strategy on the part of those people who have taken over the Republican Party. Traditional Republicans did not do that. Traditional Democrats did not do that, except in certain moments in the 19th century. Um, but what you're seeing now is a really explicit attempt to create uh, divisions where I don't think otherwise there would be. And that, you know, because most of us agree on the basic things that I was talking about, but that, I think, is an important in this moment because that division, that deliberate division of society is not simply, I think, internal to American politics. It is, of course, part of a larger attempt to divide the American population, to divide the centrists in the United States, in the EU, in places around the world. And that is a really deliberate strategy of pitting the, the extremes against the middle. And by put, pitting the extremes against the middle, you can divide a society. And that's really clearly articulated in a lot of Russian political theory the idea of increasing the power of Russia to become an, a, a new imperial Russia depends on tearing apart democracies. And the way you tear about apart democracies is, as I say, by pitting those ends against the middle. And I think that one of the things we're seeing now is not only the, the, the longstanding attempt, especially on the American right, to divide America in two, but the supercharging of that through social media by bad actors in other countries. And, you know, if you're watching the Department of Justice, you will see there again and again and again, indicting foreign actors for doing precisely that, not just from Russia, but from an Iran, from China, from places like that as well. How much of this, because, you know, you, you, we are required to do quite a lot of reading, quite a lot of mastication, understanding of this, of this information. And this phrase, a low information voter, which is something that was kind of new to me when I moved to the U.S. It's like, what a nice, it's a bit like calling uh, immigrants illegals. I was like, you know, it doesn't quite sit well with me. But I understand the premise, and that is that not everybody is well-read and not everybody understands the bigger picture and is able to make informed decisions, partly because education is not so great in the U.S., public education, but also people don't have the time because they're too busy working multiple jobs to, to make a living. So... And, and some argue that that is on purpose, you know, keep people stupid. So, so how, do, how does one communicate to the so-called low-information voters? Because they are certainly convinced, and we'll get on to cults a little bit later, but they are certainly convinced that they know what they're talking about, that, that you know, that all their solutions are, can, be, can be dealt with by one man, and, and that really, you know, anything other than those kind of talking points, those far right talking points, is, is not really up for debate. It's very difficult, isn't it, to communicate and, and get your message across and, and talk to people when information is so low. Well, there's, there's a couple of things there that I think it's useful to pull apart. So if you are talking about the, the dyed in the wool cannot change their opinion, Trump voters, who were created largely during his term. They come into his support, of course, in 2015 to 2016, but they really become that, as you say, cult-like or cult, you know, straight up cult 
following during his term and after his term. And again, I'm picking on political scientists here, but political scientists will tell you when you have a reactionary right movement, there's 20 to 30% of the population, largely usually lower to the, to the 20s, who cannot be changed. They are in it. They are not going to change their minds. There's nothing you can do that won't reinforce what they already believe. And the only thing you can do for them is to model a healthy political system and hope that someday they see the light, see the light but most of them never will. Those are not reachable people. But when you talk about low information voters, that's a different thing, or it can be a different thing, although those Trump people obviously are not only low information, they explicitly reject alternative alternative informations and will say, I don't care. I don't care if he's going to do that. He's my guy. And that in that case, they're talking coming from a very uh, cultural position. They're coming from a from a number of things that have very little to do with politics, reality or the future. They are only about sort of an, a, a primal scream, if you will. But low information voters are, are a different thing. And those are voters who in the past have been able simply not to pay attention because the guardrails were there and it didn't really matter to them who was in office because they were disaffected from politics or they weren't interested in politics or they didn't think it mattered. And they don't follow the news. So one of the things that that always jumps out to me is after the midterms, that always a Within the week after the midterms, people start talking about the following presidential election. And my take on that is just stop. Like nobody wants to hear about another election in this moment, except perhaps people whose jobs depend on talking about elections, because we're sick of even I'm sick of elections to to, you know, two days after the midterm elections when they're still two years out for before the next presidential election. So a lot of them are, are tuned out. A lot of them are still tuned out. But one of the things that has happened really since uh, January 6th and well, during Trump's administration, too, but during, since January 6th and especially since the Dobbs versus Jackson women's health decision is people who previously felt it didn't really particularly matter who was in office. They didn't care. Politics wasn't their thing. They recognize that it really matters now. And those voters are low information in the sense that they are waking up to what information is out there, but they're also low information in the sense that they don't really understand how the system works. And that's where I think people like you and me come in is simply saying, hey, listen, we are looking at not being able to fund the government. This is what that means. And this is why it happens. And this is how it normally happens. But it's not happening that way right now. And actually providing information, because as you say, it's no, it's no sin that people don't understand how things work. If you asked me how to rebuild an engine, I couldn't begin to do it, although I could maybe find a spark plug, right? But Simply informing people of how a system that they have not previously been tied into works is a cr crucial role, I think, for us going into 2024. And you can certainly see how it is paying off with the extraordinary levels of voter registration among young Americans and with the, the mobilization, especially of suburban women, who, again, previously just weren't that engaged and now feel quite rightly that their lives depend on being engaged. And that, I think, is a major factor going forward into the next election. And we just saw a reaction to that in these special elections and kind of halfway elections where 
the 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 row reversal basically ha- has kind of infused its way i think the effect of it because you know there's been a year or two that has passed so that people that need to access abortion have not been able to and that information well that experience is being spread around communities people are talking and they're starting to feel physically the effects of not getting access to the the care that they they need and having to cross state lines or get Gavin Newsom to have to pay to bring them to California as is 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 happening do you think how how much is is that abortion issue going to be the thing that kind of catapults Democrats to to victory in 2024 do you think because now obviously the strategists are looking at what happened last week and they're like well we need to make we need to make November all about this it's huge you know, one of the things that happened, uh, you know, uh, uh, about a year after Dobbs is I heard an older Republican male pundit saying that people were going to forget about Jackson uh, women's health. It, it wasn't going to be an issue and that they were going to forget. And I just th- remembered my head exploding because for any woman, even past childbearing years, the the medical care that is involved in reproductive health is at the very least a monthly concern, but generally simply part of daily lives. And that is obviously something that the men who are legislating on these issues don't understand. But the idea that women are suddenly going to go, yeah, we don't care. We're going to go ahead and let, you know, the the Christian nationalists decide about literally our lives and not just our lives, but of course, everything that comes from that. I mean, if you look again at our history in the United States, the invention of the birth control pill is huge in getting women into work the workplace because they begin to have control over their reproductive cycles. And the the idea that we're going to erase that at the same time that other democratic countries are expanding those rights, I, I, I'm speaking of being in bubbles. I think the ideas of the people who pushed that legislation and who are now trying to backpedal on it and and try and make American women accept a smaller piece of a pie that they enjoyed as a constitutional right for 50 years is absolutely delusional. And that I think is you can see in the in the elections we've had since Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health and the fact that Democrats have overperformed by eight points in those elections. That's not because um, you know suddenly people are waking up and saying, "Gee, I really care about tax policy." That's women and and the men who support them. By the way, it's not just a women's issue; it's obviously a, a man's issue as well. Saying, you know, we cannot turn our basic rights over to a minority of the American people who adhere to an extreme version of Christian evangelicism. That's not what this country is all about. And so that then becomes uh, at the very visceral level one about actual body autonomy, bodily autonomy. But then it very quickly becomes a question about who gets to make decisions in society. And do we, in fact, want to turn our government over to this, to the Mike Johnsons of the world? And there you you get into another issue. We are currently in a situation where we're looking at a, somebody who has never faced an opponent, who has very weird, at the very least, finances, and probably um, is doing something that the rest of us probably would not. I'm not suggesting necessarily that it's illegal, but it's a form of engaging with our financial system that most of us don't experience, um, has no experience at all putting together a big team of people to make the actual government work, and now has to fund the government, and and at least as you and I were speaking, appears to have absolutely no plan. That idea of turning the the finances of our government, the, the strongest government in the world, 
over to somebody who says his guide is the Bible is going to bring home to people who think they don't care about Dobbs versus Jackson women's health just how dangerous it is to put a, a Christian nationalist, an extremist into positions of power in this country. I think that's a powerful message. You think people understand the difference between moderate Christianity and, and Christian nationalism and, and the idea that Christianity can be weaponized? Because, you know, obviously the evangelical vote is a big one and Donald Trump lied about being a Christian and all that stuff in order to kind of grab those people. And in fact, Donald Trump welcomed all waifs and strays in order to boost his numbers. That was part of the issue, whether it be fine people on both sides or anything else. You know, he, he wasn't discriminating, probably for the first time in his life, about, you know, who could and, and, and shouldn't be in his fold. And yet... We're now in a situation where, in my experience, talking to people, they don't understand the threat of having Mike Johnson as the Speaker of the House, the second in line to the presidency, and him being an extremist because he doesn't look like one. He has a lovely face and perfect hair, and he wears a suit rather well, and he speaks very quietly and kindly, and he's not brandishing a weapon or, you know, giving, you know, he's, he doesn't look like what an American might consider an extremist to look like. He doesn't have any tattoos, I presume. So so just kind of respond to that. Um, I love these questions because um, th there was a generation speaking there that um, it, just in your last comment, of course, for our generation, tattoos had a certain meaning. For the next generation, tattoos have a very different meaning. Yeah, so I suspect true. that we, it, I suspect we're going to see more and more of our, you know, our leaders with tattoos, yeah. um, and it will become more of an issue of extremism not to have them. Um, but, um, but. There, there. I am not a scholar of Christian demographics, um, so that's the first thing to say there. But that being said, I think you have your answer in the Ohio vote in, last week, yeah. where a, a significant proportion of Republicans crossed the line to support the idea of reproductive rights being enshrined in the Ohio Constitution. And the um, the one of the things that I would say, because I'm from a rural area, and I used to be a waitress in the Bible Belt. And um, so I worked closely with evangelical Christians and I have worked closely with Christians um, in, in, and I live with Christians and I live around, uh, I live in a very mixed area where there are Trump supporters through um, communists in, in, in my area. And what I would say is that when you are in at least a small town, there is a very clear difference between Christians and Christian Republicans and the evangelical extremists. And the, the distinctions that we may not see from people who don't identify as Christian, who are more highly educated, who are um, look at the Christians as a group, I think perhaps don't recognize the distinction that is there between people who are traditionally Republican because their parents were Republican, because they are part of a, a system in which being Republican is a mark of um, social identity, and those who are militant Christian extremists. And um, 
And that distinction is re- was really important in Ohio, where you literally now have members of the Ohio legislature, uh, members of the North Dakota legislature, members of the, the current day Ohio Republican Party simply saying they don't care what the voters decided. They are going to continue to try and, and, and stop all abortions in Ohio. And yet you had a significant proportion of people who self-identify as Republicans switching over and saying, nah, we're not part of that evangelical thing. So I think that's actually something really, again, to, to, to remember is that it is, there is traditional Republicanism that in fact supports reproductive rights. Planned Parenthood was very famously supported by the Romney family. You know, it was part of the idea that people should have control over their futures, control over their destinies, and a pushback at the time against the Catholic Church's concept of the idea that one accepted all the babies that one was given. And that traditional Republican idea is is not that old. So I think it is possible, once again, to highlight that most the majority of Americans sit in a pretty comfortable center here that is something different than the Mike Johnsons of the world, than the um, the Jim Jordans of the world, than the, uh, you know, the extremists who are saying, if democracy doesn't give us what we want, we're going to overthrow democracy because our Bible and our God is more important to us than those basic tenets of what it means to be an American. Did you hear the clip of Mike Johnson saying that if we kept all the babies that were terminated, then we would be able to pay for Social Security and the cost of running the country. I mean, that thinking, not only does it lack any kind of intellectual basis, but it is it is presented in a way that seems like, you know, again, because of he's like a Trojan horse, that guy, isn't he? You know, he really presents quite well and unfortunately we're at a stage now in the u.s where if you're wearing a suit and you say it in a moderate way some people are going to believe you yeah some people are um you know i'm very interested in the the gender split in the way people perceive politics which has been growing since 1980 that's the first time we see it women and men in the same demographic splitting and women voting much more heavily for a democratic candidate now of course that's on steroids and one of the reasons for that is that women who have experience in the public sphere recognize that behavior. Not all of them, but I will, I was just telling something the other day. I remember when Donald Trump was looming over Hillary Clinton in the debates and, um, and talking to a man about that, watching those debates and him going, why is he doing that? Like what's yeah. going on? And there isn't a woman who watched that, who's been in the workplace or anywhere else who, who didn't absolutely get that he was trying to intimidate her and enforce his dominance over her. So I would love to see that split, but you've touched on something that that I think is really interesting. And I, you know, I've been watching, I am not a Christian and I am not a scholar of modern American religion. I'm actually quite good on the Puritans if you'd like to talk about the Puritans. But um, but from the beginning, from the first time that Trump got into office, you had a significant pushback of extremely religious people who recognized that his the, the, the form of Christianity that he was embracing was antithetical to everything they believed in. Most notably, um, the... Uh, I'm, I'm going to get the title wrong and I'm sorry. It's, it was something like Mormon women against Trump. That actually may be what they were called. And one of the reasons I, I believe that Mitt Romney began to moderate his stance early on was because he was fes- facing extraordinary pressure at home from Mormon women. And one of the things that, that 
I have been sort of interested in is which way the Christian community, not the not the far right evangelical Christian community, which is wedded to Donald Trump, would would jump. But the Christian community, because the truth is, as you have Johnson saying outrageous things like that, or the many members of the House Oversight Committee or the House Judicial Committee going out on television and really clearly lying. I mean, really clearly um, within the last week, there was one of them caught out for saying that he was absolutely going to enforce subpoenas against um, uh, Hunter Biden and James Biden, the, pres- uh, the president's brother. And the, the news reporter said, well, well, why didn't you do the same against Steve Bannon? And he said, well, you know, you didn't have to do that because, you know, he, he wasn't in office. And the person said, well, Hunter Biden and James Biden aren't in office. And the person just sort of circled the drain on that. And and because, of course, that is absolutely true. They're bending the system to try and go after people based on their own ideological beliefs. And the thing that interests me about that is I don't think that's a really good look for the Christian brand either. And if you look at the rate at which people are dropping away from a declared uh, support for Christianity in this country, I am not a Christian, as I say, but if I were one and I were interested in spreading the word of my my deity, I would be very concerned about being associated with those extremists who are openly lying, um, following what certainly looks to be a cult-like figure, acting in ways that certainly to those of us who don't share that uh, that religion um, look really like something we wouldn't want to be part of. And in this moment, it will be, you know, you're starting to see organizations like the Mormon Women Against Trump, like some of the, you know, the other Christian organizations splitting off and saying, that's not us. And you can see splits, for example, in the Southern Baptist community, where they are trying on the one hand to reject the the extreme um, radicalism, which, by the way, Mike Johnson was part of, and trying to, to bring... Uh, uh, the Southern Baptists back into a much more mainstream position, which they have, which they left in the 1970s. So it, it, I, it, it's not really part of what you and I are supposed to be talking about. But in terms of looking forward to politics, there is movement in communities other than the ones that we are looking at just as political communities, as there always is in a time of extraordinary social upheaval. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics originally inspired by NASA, Miracle Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get a better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them to stay cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. No more gross odors. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing outbreaks and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo code weekend at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. 
Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash weekend and use the code weekend to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. That's trymiracle.com slash weekend to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. If someone would have told me that there are science-backed ingredients that could help me feel 15 years younger in a matter of months, I wouldn't have believed it. Then I tried Qualia Senolytic. As we age, everyone accumulates senescent cells in their bodies. Senescent cells cause symptoms of aging, such as aches and pains, slow workout recoveries, sluggish mental and physical energy associated with that middle-age feeling. Also known as zombie cells, they are old and worn out and not serving a useful function for our health anymore, but they are taking up space and nutrients from our healthy cells. Much like pruning the yellowing off dead leaves of a plant, Qualia Senolytic removes those worn-out senescent cells to allow for the rest of them to thrive in the body. It takes just two days a month. The formula is non-GMO, vegan, gluten-free, and the ingredients are meant to complement one another, factoring in the combined effect of all ingredients together. It has a 100-day money-back guarantee, and since taking Qualia Senolytic, I have higher energy levels, I feel 15 years younger, and feel more productive and enthusiastic in life, not to mention less aches and pains. Resist aging at the cellular level. Try Qualia Senolytic. Go to neurohacker.com slash weekend for up to $100 off and use code weekend at checkout for an additional 15% off. That's neurohacker.com slash weekend for an extra 15% off your purchase. Thanks to Neurohacker for sponsoring today's video. Comedian and star of The President Show, Anthony Atamanik, joined us to discuss Donald Trump's psychopathy and his threat of retribution in 2024. The reason that I asked you to, to come here today is because in politics, as far as I'm aware, if you get a character who rises like Boris Johnson in the UK and Donald Trump in the, in the US, mm -hmm. the British way of dealing with these people is to ridicule them. And yes. the media will ridicule them because they're obviously not serious. They're, mm -hmm. you know, serious people. They're obviously not serious candidates. They're not really into public service. They're obviously in it for themselves. Right. And so the British way to get rid of Boris Johnson, as they did, was for the media to ridicule him. Right. And, and so he is now not, not, not the prime minister. Yeah. That didn't really work with the media in the U.S. In fact, it's widely yeah. reported that U.S. media actually promoted Donald Trump because he was box office. He, he, yes. he gave people a reason to watch the television. And, yeah. and we now know how that's ended up with obviously the rise of fascism and, and just a very dark period in, in American political history. Um, yeah. So, you know, my first question to you really is, is how did the president show come along at that time? Because this started as a kind of late night talk show with Trump as the yes. host, but very early on in his presidency. Well, um, first, yeah, the, the media, U.S. media for Trump, statistic, I think numbers wise, was almost close to a billion dollars in free coverage that Trump was given from 2015, from August of 2015, all the way through to the election. And I think it's just important for your viewers to understand that um, the the 
the inverse effect, I think, occurred partly because we have for-profit media in the United States, whereas you have partly essentially state-sponsored or, or uh, yeah. supported media, much like our public broadcasting system in the United States. Right. So I think the cynicism also around uh, people even turning their nose up at Trump during the uh, initial coverage period from the escalator roll down to maybe this, I think the second debate uh, in the South Carolina, I think was the second um, GOP debate in, in August, in August 25th, I think, of 2015. Maybe it was 27th. But the point being that um, uh, during that period of time, I think that you have a cynicism in the United States, both of our media apparatus and also speaking to politicians. I think that there uh, was a general um, I think a general perception that most people who are in politics, regardless of Trump or not, were also in it for the wrong reasons. Citizens United, uh, along with a number of various uh, uh, chipping away at uh, institutions from the Tea Party onward, the cynicism of the House leadership over that time, um, and and also the birtherism issues around uh, Obama. This had been building steam, and Trump happened to become the golem or the form of what it became, but this was building steam prior, right? So I, I think that um, in terms of him as a phenomenon, I think just the right psychopath happened to show up at the right time when someone had built a, a, a casing for that psychopath to inhabit. And I use that not as even a pejorative term. I really am not, a, I'm not a therapist. I'm not an analyst, but I am an actor. And I can say that he exhibits a lot of psychopathy from being charming to being able, I mean, if you look at one of the famous interview clips is um, him being asked what his favorite passage of the Bible was. Yeah. And he says, well, I don't want to say which verse it is because it's very personal to me. But and then they go, well, which book, you know, or not which book, which testament, you know, old or new. Yeah. Oh, I like them both equally. That yeah. is the mark of a person who understands how to manipulate other people's uh, not only manipulate other people's um, responses and reception, but also how to play on um, people's sense of embarrassment and politeness, which is one of the really uh, great marks of a narcissistic psychopathic personality. How do I play on other people's politenesses in order to take advantage of them? So that being said, um, I started, uh, I was, you know, I've been a comic actor and performer for a long time. And I, you know, would sort of do these boot camp shows where every Tuesday I would just do a different character. And it was a lot of social commentary mixed in with the, with the, whatever material I did long and the short, uh, I think I improvised Trump in a show uh, at a flagship show at UCB called ASCAT. Um, someone said, oh, that Trump was funny. You should do a show. And I think I booked it a week later, September 7th of 2015. I did a show called Trump Dump. And the predicate of that show was he had won. And this was his first press conference after he won. And you can go back. I think I have some clips up online. You can go back and look at those clips almost 90% of what I said in 2015 came true. Um, so anyway, I ended up doing a tour with my friend James Adomian, who played Bernie Sanders. And that tour uh, led to a few specials on the Fusion Network, which was a, a cable channel that was becoming a YouTube channel. <laughs> and then, um, and then uh, 
when he got elected, I had appeared on Howard Stern and it appeared on CNN on election night, um, or on, I'm sorry, on The View on election night. Uh, but I had started making the rounds in sort of assessing things uh, and doing my own form of commentary. So by the time he got elected, it sort of became natural, this idea of like, well, what would Donald Trump's fireside chats be? Like if FDR did fireside chats, you know, in order to comfort a nation, wouldn't his be sort of a mix of Carson from the 70s and the uh, Robert De Niro hosted like talk show from Casino that when his character has to like get relegated to doing um, can't do anything with the casino. And it's sort of like the third act of the film. And he's doing this sort of very Vegasy, cheesy kind of show. So I figured this was would be Trump's fireside chats would essentially be a late night talk show straight from the Oval Office. So that was the conceit of the show um, to give you up as best a brief history as I can give you of what it was. But I mean, I said that Trump was a white supremacist as Trump. I was also doing him on Brooke Baldwin's show in February of 2016. I think I was one of the first people to say, you know, his alignment with white supremacy very uh, on a major cable news network. Uh, and, you know, and it made the producers nervous that I said it. Um, but again, to me, these things are observations. They're not even, I mean, it's a dispersion to be a white supremacist, but it's an observation. I mean, uh, and I can get into why I kind of knew that and saw that, but I, I don't want to uh, steamroll you. But Well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, get, yeah. it, we'll get into that yeah. because I, I, I genuinely am interested. Um, what, what also interests me is the lack of, political commentary for the public at large in the US. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of shows on British television that are satirical comedy shows, political, you know, political satire and yeah. you know that it keeps the national conversation going. And it occurred to me that really the only if you don't watch the news and a lot of people don't watch the news, then really yeah. the only interaction you have with what might be going on is with the late night talk show hosts when they do yes. their monologue. And yeah. the monologue invariably, whether it be, you know, obviously Jimmy Fallon does a little less politics than some of the others, you know, but yes. ultimately that is really, for a lot of people, a way to get their dose of what's been going on in the political world. And yes. it is rather tragic that, that somebody who has come to represent, you know, the, the far right and the extreme nature of politics in, in fascism mm -hmm. had only really been communicated to the public that these things were happening because of the late night talk show host. And yeah. that's why I thought your show, the president show was so genius because to humiliate Donald Trump and to, to send him up is to give him a late night talk show, which his yeah. ego is perfect for Yes, to set it in the oval office where the resolute desk is the desk that every late night talk show host has and yes. to have guests on and to have, you know, Bernie Sanders as a sidekick. It, it, to me, it was it was genius. And I know it ran for 20 episodes on, on uh, Comedy Central. Yeah. So with, with that, with that gift, did you feel while you were making that show that you had a social responsibility to expose him for who he really was? Yeah, I would argue that you could look at our series as a book, uh, as an apocryphal book, or a, a Nostradamus-like roadmap for what ended up being the next uh, four years of, from that yeah. point on. 
Um, and just a one correction that it was actually Mike Pence was the was Sorry, the Mike, sidekick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, played yeah. by this my showrunner Pete Gross, the great Pete Gross. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, yeah, we not only saw it as a responsibility, but you know my um, background was I was a poli sci minor at Emerson College. I was always very interested in politics and probably really was in some way latently more interested in commentary and news. It's, you know, in some way, but just, you know, knew I didn't have the gravitas to, to pull it off. So I did comedy instead, but, um, but uh, I've always, I mean, I've been, I've been going to primaries in New Hampshire since the late nineties. Like I love, I love politics and I I love the game of it. And um, anyway, I'm very interested in it. And even during that 2016 cycle, you know, our former governor in Massachusetts, Bill Weld, was the VP candidate for the Libertarian Party. And I knew Bill, you know, for many years back. And he and my father played in a band that he was a fan of. So in other words, I've been involved in politics and understand the language of it. And um, I think there was sort of three things that were really important was identifying that Trump not only was complete anomaly in terms of his behavior. Um, and also uh, going back to August and September in those uh, early primary debates, when he blew the roof off of everything by calling out, you know, Jeb Bush and nicknaming people and Marco Rubio with the water and all this stuff, these things, which were funny and entertaining. And at the time, I think if you were a Democrat or especially if you were a mainstream left-leaning member of the commentariat, you sort of enjoyed watching Trump blow apart this field of these sort of empty suits that were yeah. delivering the same BS, right? The only problem is that the Democrats have the same group of people. It's not like we don't have right. our own empty suits, right? If, you know, if I'm aligning that way, right? And so I think there was a celebration of him. And I think that there was a devil's bargain that like, well, you know, it will be worth it to watch him mess them up. And then we will come in with our reason and our leadership. And like you said, listen, the, the, the uh, general public is very ill-informed. And one of the reasons the general public is ill-informed is one is economics. In order, if you, most people still watch the nightly news, which has to be broadcast Right. If you don't have cable, you have to have a digital box. Uh, also, the electorate that matters that turns out to vote is working two or three jobs. Uh, they are probably not receiving civics classes from the uh, underfunded uh, public education that they got. Right. So you have also a population that is black, white, Latinx, uh, every stripe that you can imagine that are exploited and overworked and underinformed, okay? And that to no fault of their own, that isn't like the ignorant masses. That is designed this way, right? It's, it's partly a design to choke out the working person so that there's less opportunity for real change because if you had real candidates getting elected, they would agitate in ways that would disrupt the system. Trump just happened to be um, the wrong, the absolutely wrong agitator, right, at the right time. And, um, you know, his, we saw the responsibility of the show to be expose him, expose him, be funny, but not only expose him, but let's expose the entire model 
I mean, our show, you know, one of our, our Christmas special was, was BB Newworth essentially playing a, a sort of Maggie Haberman type character and Trump and, and Maggie Haberman, BB Newworth singing a song about the parasitic, mutually parasitic relationship between the mainstream press and Trump, yeah. you know, for all the, all the, uh, um, and we're still doing it. I mean, you know, we're still the trial. The only difference now is that the media was so shamed by covering Trump. In other words, Trump was so egregious post COVID that the, that, that, that it was harder to go. Let's show his entire rally. Right. As they used to do CNN used to show an hour and a half. They used to literally talk like a football game. You'd have the half hour prior where all the talking ends. So everybody made a lot of money off of him. A lot of the things he says about those things are true. A lot. The media made a lot of money. A lot of people celebrated him. But the other truth about Trump is that, I think anybody who knows, and you should, you know, probably coming from UK and I know from coming from New England, that there is still a form of a caste system of who actually gets to be in politics, who actually gets to be the real landowners in the city, right? And you have to have a certain background and you're probably not even Catholic, you know, you're probably not, you know, it's like there is a real rigid, strict zone that you can be in to really be in charge in this country well look how the squad has been ridiculed you know exactly ilan omar and and people that are seeking to you know they really care like they genuinely are there for the right reasons yes yet they they are they are almost being uh, ridiculed out of uh, mainstream politics by not just the opposition in in the house but also the media you know and squeezed by their own supporters Right. squeezed by the, the DSA because now they're not living up to the radical change that they want. In other words, you cannot yeah. win because yeah. what Trump ushered in that was more destructive than anything was the era of true extremity that was celebrated and not marginalized. And the argument I would make is that back in my day, you had, I don't know who your guy was, maybe it was Enoch Powell or whatever, um, that uh, that you had uh, the guy at the card table for Lyndon LaRouche in Harvard Square or whatever, and he had pamphlets and he was sort of screaming about stuff and you could sort of marginalize it. Or Morton Downey Jr. on New Jersey uh, uh, television that was broadcast on UHF channels in the in the 80s, right? You had this sort of margin, right? Uh, Weekly World it News. It was the fringe. It was, it was, it was, it was the, fringe. the fringe of politics. It wasn't at the very heart and compare that yes. to the new Speaker of the House, who yes. is a, you know a, a far right Christian nationalist. Yes, and within his first week, uh, Mike Johnson, we're talking about, he yes. has already you know using leverage and taking this kind of religious belief to direct his. I mean, he refused to meet with some Ukrainian religious leaders the other day. Yes, I mean this is this is an example of how the pox of extremism can yes. infiltrate an entire political system very very quickly yes because it's it's only been a you know it's only been six seven years since yep. this all kicked off in in any you know it's always been around tea party and and obviously the, down back to the yep. kkk but yes. it's never really been at the very center uh, of american politics in this way so i i just want to ask you about mental health because this is something that the media 
and politics won't go to. You know, they, they, the very powerful documentary um, that was called Unfit, the, the Psychology of Donald Trump, which was on Netflix and Prime and various yep. streaming services, it, it had a whole bunch of, of psychologists, psychiatrists, psychotherapists analyzing Donald Trump. And the argument that, uh, you know, a few people have made, oh, well, how can you analyze him if you've never done a session with him? It's just garbage because this is the most photographed man on the planet, right? So right, there's, right. There's, enough, there's enough material for them to do this. And, and Bandy Lee, who's been on this show a few times, is the, is the psychiatrist who really has put out this w- duty to warn the yep. fact that the malignant narcissism is the cause of all of this destruction. Yes. But the media won't talk about his mental health, and the the other politicians won't go there either. Right. So it's left to comedians, and it's left to commentators, and it's left to people who really don't have that much skin in the game right. to, to do. So when you approached Donald Trump, how much of his... His his m- m- mental health. Did you feel you had to tackle and be aware of? It was actually, uh, I think it was probably one of the more cathartic experiences I've had, and also frightening because I had to reconcile, as I think we all do, we have to reconcile that we all have the the nature or ability to turn that on in ourselves. That um, that is a part of yourself, right? It happens to be the part that governs him. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it to take on and adopt and say, I'm going to just be um, pure, as I would see it, pure reaction. He's pure reaction. There is, he is, he is in taking all threats. And I think this probably comes from, because two things, we had a psychologist on our show. We did a fake therapy session with Trump. In as one of our bits on the show, and I wish I could look it up because the the guy was a, he had written a book. I should have remembered this, but I didn't prepare for this part. Um, he was he wrote a book about the psychology of Trump, and he did an analysis, and it was sort of the same conversation. You know, the what's the ethical responsibility of analyzing someone? Um, you know, there's sort of two things. One, he expresses violence at a very early age. He is five or six, and he is um, uh, braining, braining a kid with a rock. He used to take girls, he would sit behind in class and he would pull their uh, ponytails and pull them down out of their chair. Okay. And these are from his childhood friends. I've spoken to them in segments on the show. Um, He used to eat oranges through the rind as part of a ritual before they would uh, play some sort of sport. But um, so uh, his mother, you know, would have these nervous breakdowns and she would sort of have these mental breakdowns. And his father was deeply abusive. So this is not, you know, empathy is not sympathy and empathy is not endorsement. But this was a person who probably grew up damaged, was born with some damage, watched his mother lose her mind. She would go into the bedroom and just lie there and not talk to anyone for for days. Then she would have screaming fits. She would go wander down to the key foods and yell out in front of the key foods. And if she saw people of color say that they were trying to mug her or attack her. okay, so she was completely off her rocker. And uh, Fred was abusive and also, I think, disappointed the old, you know, how he always talks about his older brother who died, who you know passed yeah. away from alcoholism. Yeah. So, you know, he was, um, I think, a huge trauma when he passed away. That's Mary's father. 
I think it was a really deep, deep trauma for Trump. I actually think Trump looked up to him. Uh, and and also, Trump didn't go to the funeral or something. He went to the cinema instead. Yeah, yeah. I think he did not go to the funeral. He went to the cinema, which, by the way, yeah. it it seems gross on its face. Who knows what it was? I don't know. No. It could have been that he couldn't deal with it. But the no. point, and the reason I say is you have to approach it that he's a person, right? He's not a, he might be monstrous, he is a person, right? And why it's important to see someone as a person is because that's the best way to um, defeat them. <laughs> you know, if you see them as a, if you see them just as a, as a sort of a ethereal creature, a brand, yeah. a monster, whatever, you can't. So I think that um, in approaching that, I, I went, okay, so this guy is all defense, all stimuli, and also all indulgence. And everything is about scheming, about what he can get away with. And- I think he really does believe this. I think if he believes that if you believe in the reality that you want to, I mean, it's almost very sort of new age. <laughs> he, I think he really believes in creating your own reality. And I think that's worked for him for quite a long time. I think his understanding of gaming the system of you want to build a building, build a building, and then don't pay the workers, let them sue you, and then let the courts do the work. And then you will pay 50% of the price. You'll pay the lawyers. You end up saving money and you delay everybody and you delay paying everybody, right? It's like what he's being charged with now, the hyperinflating of hit the value of his properties. Um, this is an extension. Where is the line between bullshitting the way you bullshit in a bar, right? Where's the line between trying to pick up a lady in a bar and BSing a little bit, right? To pick her up. Okay. Just as an example of weird machismo um, and lying about your building or lying about how many floors it has, or is it, does it really do any harm to make value? It, and is his argument, I mean, his argument is wrong and right. The banks made money. And why I think what he does... Well, he said there was no victim. Kept saying, there's no victim. If anyone no victim. is the victim, yeah. it's me. Yes, of course. And that's always going to be the case. But right. I think the one truth he, he does expose, and I think it's important to see those truths because it prepares us for the next version of him, which is going to be better, slicker, less yeah. gross, less weird... And it's going to yeah. be more dangerous. Yeah. You know, people think it's going to stop with him. He is just an avatar of something awful that is now in the world. That's always been in the world, but it's been resuscitated because of the new level of media exposure and our ability to see ourselves. You know, humanity now can see itself at a level it's never been able to before. We are witnessing each other way more than we ever have. You know, if you think about the exposure that the banks just like the media, everyone was fine with benefiting off of this person all the way to the point where they became the president of the United States, right? Everyone had, didn't have a problem with him exploiting them and them exploiting him. And that should show the, the darker part of our system, which is that our system is structured to exploit, exploit, and then dump. Look at Britney Spears as an example. It's exploit, yeah. exploit, and then cut loose, right? But when you get the wrong person, and I think you got the wrong person with Trump, the exploitee became the exploiter. And so I think that at a certain point, he went, oh, you think I'm the sideshow? I'm the main event. And now, and now look what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you, by the way, 
as we've learned, the United States government can run rudderless and without direction for four years without any leadership. That's wild. That's not good. I I thought about that a lot, and I'm very pleased that you mention it because it's something that it's a lesson to us all, really, that this figurehead can either do a lot of good with that much power or they can be completely benign, make it all about them, and in the process just forget that they have a job to do. Because, yeah. you know, I, I'm of the opinion that he he didn't really work during those four years. You know, he, no. he made a lot of noise, but he, he never really went to work. A couple of weeks ago, I was joined by Tom Bonya, who is a professional pollster, and he discussed the presidential polling leading into the 2024 race and why we shouldn't always believe everything that we read in the polls. So polling is one of those kind of fascinating conversations, isn't it? Because there's there's a line that often goes with it, which is never believe the polls, which I find kind of interesting. And we certainly saw in in the last, well, certainly in the midterms that, that you know, and in fact, you correctly predicted that there, there would not be the red wave that people were talking about. And so this is a this is an issue, isn't it? That that time and time again, whilst we have a feeling about how what direction America might be going, the polls tend not to line up with that. And then when the election comes, we're often surprised as well. So considering that it's currently Joe Biden versus Donald Trump for November 2024, Joe Biden is polling around 37 percent approval despite huge successes in the economy and everything else. What's what's missing here? What am I missing? <laughs> what, what we're all missing, perhaps, as you said, the the polling is at a point where and, and I'm not one of these people who says you should ignore the polls or throw all the polls out. I think the polls are very useful data points. I think in general, we're just using them for the wrong thing. You know, people will look at the polls and say who's winning or who's losing. No votes have been cast. yet. And so when you talk about the presidential approval rating, you have seen this decoupling that has happened. And by the way, it's not new with President Biden. It's something that we saw happen under Trump, where you see a bit of a bump early on. Trump didn't really get that much of an approval bump. He got something after he got elected. Biden got a pretty substantial one that lasted about half a year. But in this era of hyperpolarization, what you're seeing is basically everyone then goes back to their camps pretty quickly. And you see this hyperpolarized result in the favorability and the approval rates, where Democrats still, in general, feel pretty good about President Biden. Republicans, none of them are going to give him any credit for anything whatsoever. And then independents at this point, and I think this shows one of the challenges in front of the Biden campaign, independents are looking a little bit more like Republicans when you look at the favorability and approval ratings largely because they're just not checked into this presidential race, which I don't blame them. That's probably the healthy thing to do at this point, still, you know, 11 months out from from the campaign. But you mentioned the economic data, and it's right. You know, what we saw over this past week with good economic data released, this isn't the first time week over week over week, we're seeing stronger economic data coming out. But President Biden's favorability numbers have been going down. It certainly doesn't help that there are two wars going on at the moment. And when you look at what's happening or really what's not happening in Washington, people aren't seeing politicians in Washington getting things done. And the president is going to bear the brunt of that with those who generally aren't paying a lot of attention, fair or unfair. 
Just explain to people how the polling is done. When we talk about 37% approval rating, what does that mean? Because, you know, some of these polls might be, what, a thousand people being phoned on an old-fashioned telephone, a landline phone, but others are a little bit more advanced with, with technology. Just explain what, what, what we're dealing with. There's such a wide range of quality and different approaches when it comes to political polling these days and public opinion polling. And, you know, the challenge is sorting through the good and the not so good yeah. or, 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 you know, there aren't frankly that many very good polls out there at this point because it's challenging. We have an internal polling team and they'll tell you the same thing. When we look at our polls, to your point about how it actually happens to reach one person, to get one person to get on the phone or get online or through a text survey, actually answer all of the questions the pollster wants them to answer. To get one person, they'll have to reach out to generally about 100 people now, meaning the response rates are close to 1%. It's pretty soul-destroying, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's... <laughs> it's like selling insurance. You can't blame people at this yeah. point. Um uh, you know, I, I uh, uh, teach a political science class at Howard University. I always ask students, how many of you will answer your cell phone if you get a call from someone you don't recognize the number? And it's almost universal. People are not picking up calls unless it's someone they know. Even if it is someone they know, often they aren't. So that's one of the biggest challenge. And so you get something called response bias, where the question is, are the people who are taking these surveys actually representative of the people who aren't? And what we've seen increasingly is the answer is no, they're, they're not representative. And that response bias, bias can go either way. In the 2016 election, the people who weren't taking the surveys were more likely to be Trump voters. People talked about this idea of a, quote, shy Trump voter, which is sort of funny to think about nowadays, given how loud and obnoxious they are. Yeah. Um, but that dynamic changed up until in 2022, where there was actually a bias in the polls and Democrats and progressives were less likely to take these surveys. So that's a big challenge. So we all get bogged down in the details of margin of error. You'll, you'll see people talking about in this poll result, you know, someone's leading inside or outside the margin of error, which basically just means statistically, they can look at this survey and because it's a small group, as you say, generally about a thousand people, you have some polls that are as few as 600 people or 400, some they're bigger, 2000 or more. But the margin of error means, well, we're saying that President Biden is at about 38% approval, job approval. But statistically, that means with a margin of error of about 4%, means he could be at 42%, he could be at 34%. That's statistically what it means. What we're missing when we talk about the margin of error is that margin of error assumes that the pollster is perfectly predicted and gotten a sample that is perfectly representative of the American electorate. And when you start to think about likely voters in an election that's going to happen November, a year from now, just under a year from now, that's really hard. No one can do that. To get the right number of younger voters, older voters, women, men, breaking down by race, ethnicity education, all of these different elements that are so important to predicting outcomes of elections, it's impossible for pollsters to do right. And so it's something, it's a big grain of salt that we have to take into account when we're, when we're talking about these polls. It's in interesting, isn't it, that there's so much data being gathered these days by Amazon and, and Instagram and everything else. And, and, and yet 
you know, so they could tell us how we're going to vote before we even know how we're going to vote. They probably could. Right. But also they could allow us to vote via Instagram or Amazon without having to go to a polling place. And it would be as secure as those sites already are. And yet there is no appetite for switching to any kind of technology that would actually encourage more people to vote or do what, say, they do in Australia, where you have to vote. I mean, it's so interesting, isn't it, that, that voter apathy is still a very big thing. And, and you know, what, what percentage of people are likely to go to the polls this year versus last year? Well, it's interesting because, to your point, in 2020, and the pandemic happened, and there was this question of how do we conduct an election safely during a pandemic when, in general, most of Americans had no choice but to go into a polling place. And I, I think the election workers and the election officials in most states deserve a lot of credit because they pivoted in very short time and they made voting more accessible. It was the greatest acceleration in voting access that this country has seen and quite some time, if not ever. And what that resulted in is over 160 million people voting. Far more people vote in that election than have ever voted in any American election. Not just in terms of raw numbers, but in terms of percent of eligible population, it was the biggest turnout um, in, in quite some time as well. And then what we saw was what happened <laughs> and the result wasn't the result that a lot of these uh, Republican election officials wanted and so, and a lot of these states, they actually rolled back and made it harder to vote. And so you're talking about things that are proven to work in terms of online voting and making voter voting more accessible in general. What we've also seen happening now is around voter registration, where there's this national system called ERIC, uh, where uh, they work to make sure that people, the registration rolls are clean, that people can register to vote that you aren't registered twice in the same state or when you move, you aren't registered in the state that you moved away from. It's something that actually prevents fraud. But what we found is since the 2020 presidential election, nine states, all Republican states now, have pulled out of this system at the urging of Donald Trump and, and his sycophants. And so um, it's another move that actually now makes it harder for people to register to vote. To your question, in terms of the 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 likely turnout we're going to see at this point, it's reasonable to assume that turnout will actually as a proportion of the eligible electorate will be lower than it was in 2020, perhaps substantially lower, which is, which is uh, shocking in a lot of ways, but for those who have been paying attention, I guess not surprising. And you know, we use electronic voting to vote for Dancing with the Stars, for example, and then that's considered to be quite secure. So people naturally would probably migrate to that. But really, the big issue here is that Republicans don't want people to vote because they know they will lose. And Democrats want people to vote because they believe in democracy. And these aren't really compatible, are they? These are two very different versions of why you should or shouldn't vote. And, and they are being weaponized, certainly the, the Republican side is being weaponized. And so things that are perfectly normal, like mail-in voting or proxy voting, stuff that me as a European are, are quite used to. When it came to the pandemic, Republicans claimed that ballot drop boxes, for example, were illegal and dangerous and, and risky. And in fact, they are completely standard in most westernized, civilized countries. So, so that is a problem, isn't it? 
It, it, it is. And I think it's worth digging into a little bit deeper because again, when you think of the 2020 example, there was something that jumped out to me. It was about a week before election day. And as I was going through the early voting data, because we know because of that mail balloting in so many states that allowed people to vote by mail, um, you know, it was a, the largest proportion of the electorate, people actually voting by mail. And what I saw in the early voting data, because what we can see is actually detail on who has voted. To be clear, we don't know for whom. We don't know, you know, it's a secret ballot, obviously. But we can see this individual on our file has cast a ballot. And it lets us analyze the election um, as it is unfolding over the weeks leading into election day. And one thing that jumped out at me was first in Georgia, obviously a pivotal state in the end. We knew it was going to be beforehand in the end. You know, as we know, famously, Donald Trump lost by just over 10,000 votes, the votes that he asked people to find. I just for him need there. you to find me 11,000. <laughs> right. I mean, it's on tape. <laughs> right. He, he actually yeah. said it. And then obviously, uh, you know, Democrats picking up the two U.S. Senate seats there in the runoff right. a little bit later. So incredibly important state. So I was paying close attention. And one thing I saw was that when we looked at the early vote against so was a week or two out. More Asian American voters had voted already at that point than had voted in the entirety of any election ever in Georgia, which was somewhat shocking. And then what happened was it happened in Texas a few days later where you saw a similar surge. It was one of the, the big, perhaps underreported stories of the election and, and President Biden's victory was Asian American voters are traditionally one of the lowest turnout uh, demographic groups in the United States surged in turnout by more than any other group. And so I spent a lot of time after the election talking to Asian American organizers, organizing groups, uh, participating in panels, and really just hearing about the work they were doing. And the most common thread I heard was this sense, a lot of them as first and second generation immigrants, of opaqueness around the voting process in terms of going into a polling place, oftentimes when the ballot wouldn't be in the language you speak, and uh, and just, you know, concerns about what it was like in the country that they came from and thinking this system is not for us. Vote by mail changed that for them, that they had the ability to take their time with it, to translate the ballot, to talk about it, to consider their choices and also to not feel threatened, because this is something that we've seen Republicans do systematically around the country. President Trump was calling um, in, in the last week or so for his supporters to do this, right, to watch the vote, to go to places like Philadelphia and Detroit. What they're talking about is voter intimidation. Yeah. It's something they've done for decades. It's something I expect to see even more of. It's something that prevented these Asian American voters and voters of color in general in this, in this country from going yeah. out to vote. Not and to so mention the Asian hate crime that had been roaring over those past few years anyway. Absolutely. And, and especially and, in 2020, yeah. you know, led by the president using racist terms to describe yeah. the pandemic and and yeah. um, and then in Georgia specifically, where there were horrendous uh, violent attacks against Asian uh, Georgians prior to the election. And so in that context, we should have looked at this and said, what a wonderful success of our electoral system. And this is something that we need to go further with and that we need to look at online voting and that we need to expand mail voting. They didn't do that. Some states did. Dem some Democratic-controlled states did. Still not going far enough in terms of online voting, um, but expanding vote-by-mail access. But again, these Republican-controlled states have made it harder to vote, and it's pure voter suppression. I think the difference is now 
I've been working in this field for almost 30 years. They're saying the quiet part out loud now. They used to have different ways that they would cloak and talk about ballot protection and that sort of thing. Um, and now you have ample record of Republicans coming out and saying that they don't want higher turnout. That's why they talked in 2022 after they saw this great surge in youth vote, 2018, 2020, the same thing. They talked about raising the the voting age. Yeah, <laughs> It's pure voter suppression uh, and they're not hiding from it anymore so much for the for the free west i mean this is the thing that you know with my my european perspective it's it's so interesting that we are in a a system that is that was doing absolutely fine until donald trump came along and said there was election interference or they started to talk about dominion voting systems or any of these things that that undermined that vote because nobody really questioned aside from things we know about like gerrymandering and, and, and the kind of suppression tactics that were going on prior to 2016 or 2020. Actually, the American voting system was held up around the world as being one of the great ones. Yeah, that's right. Well, when President Trump was already predicting fraud prior to the election, it yeah. should have been the signal yeah. in terms well, of... Well, he said, if, I'm, if I don't win, that's right. it must be fraud. That's right. It was a yeah. binary choice. It was a yeah. choose-your-own-adventure. If he wins, it was a perfectly <laughs> executed election. If he doesn't, yeah. it's obviously due to fraud. Right. Um, and so, it, 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 you know, it's no secret. It's not a, a, a secret tactic in terms of what they're employing. What we did see, obviously, and I think everyone is likely aware of this, but it's worth repeating, in terms of the the election and and any potential fraud, very limited instances of, of fraud. You know, we're talking yeah. about those that you could count on on one hand, maybe two hands. And almost entirely, if not entirely, I only leave that open because I'm not aware of any. All of the cases that I'm aware of where people have been caught and prosecuted were people who are Republicans who were trying to vote multiple times for Donald Trump. Which um, is the irony of the whole of the whole system isn't it that that actually the people that are claiming there's fraud are the ones committing the fraud and you could argue that even trump using this rhetoric is fraud in itself isn't it trying oh to, absolutely yeah. well and i think the other irony here is when you look at vote by mail itself it was something that actually republicans employed very effectively to their benefit in campaigns going back decades especially in key states like florida and arizona where it was generally used by older voters. And as a Democratic strategist, I will tell you the number of times where we would look at these campaigns where we could win on election day, but we would get beat by the Republican effort and successfully turning their voters out by mail. And yeah. that flipped almost overnight, thanks to Donald Trump, who just made up his mind before election day, where he told his followers that voting by mail is fraud. And what you saw was in places like Pennsylvania, where 70% of the vote by mail went to Democrats, 70%. And sure, Republicans turned out more of their voters on election day. It was almost enough to win. But from a tactical advantage perspective, for Democrats to be able to get your voters and turn them out a week, two weeks, even three weeks before election day, whereas I said, we have the lists now we can look at and say, well, this individual who was someone who was on our target list. There was someone we were going to send mail to. We were going to knock on their door. We were going to call them. We were going to text them. We were going to serve them digital ads. These are all expensive, time-consuming elements of a campaign. The second we see they voted, 
they're off the list. We don't have to spend time, effort, or energy on getting that individual to vote. And so Democrats were able to narrow down their voter contact universes so substantially in a way that Republicans had been able to do for really decades. And Republicans are still suffering from that. And you actually saw in Virginia in the elections uh, last month uh, where Republicans led by the Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, actually invested money in vote by mail for the first time. And it was it was almost funny watching him try to convince his supporters that, no, it's OK. Yeah. So he came up with some sort of cute name for it where it sounded like voting by mail was actually an anti-fraudulent effort. Um, and they had some success. They didn't have enough success, clearly. And it's something that Republicans are aware of. But it's in this same uh, this same line that Republicans have been trying to walk this tightrope of of not publicly disagreeing with the great leader, with the dear leader, because that, you know, risks their political career, but then behind the scenes trying to actually uh, undo the damage that he's done. You may remember, of course you remember, but it's worth remembering that Donald Trump claimed he'd won the election in 2020 at around like eight o'clock at night. And then the mail votes were counted. And of course, the it all changed, and he actually he actually claimed victory around that time, didn't he? And and was because the idea of him losing was would have just killed him, and so he thought that by claiming victory, and I think Rudy Giuliani put him up to that, that it it kind of meant that he could call that the election was was called and it was done and it was over and he and he was the winner, and then of course. So just explain to us about when the mail votes are counted, why in some states are counted at slightly different times, and how it was that Trump was able to claim victory too early on in the day. Well, the mail votes by nature just take longer to count. Part of the reason is because a lot of states, they will allow a mail vote to count as long as it was postmarked by election day, meaning you could drop it off and, and the election officials won't even receive the mail ballot until a few days after the election. Um, that said, they do receive the overwhelming majority of mail ballots before election day. And this was actually a big battle that didn't get a lot of attention in the lead up to the election. But it's important because I think it'll still be a factor in yeah, it'll happen again. elections. It will yeah. happen again. Yeah. Um, there are many states where the election officials asked for the ability for the right. They, they needed a judgment from the state to allow them to count the ballots before election day. So they could count the ones that come in. They wouldn't release the counts. They wouldn't do anything. They would just count them to be able to take their time. So it wouldn't be something where you have what we saw, where people are working through the night, through the next day. People are out protesting, uh, uh, accusing them of fraud because of, you know, they, well, this person came in with some sort of bag or whatever, these, these bizarre yeah. theories. Yeah. Um, stuffing, I think. They that's right. One of the, they they asked stuffing. for the and some states allowed them to do that. And those yeah. are the states that actually counted and released the mail ballot results, at least 90 percent plus of them very quickly. In some mm-hmm. cases, even before the election day results. That's how it could be and should be everywhere in this country. In most places, in those places where Republicans had a say in the matter, they disallowed that. They wanted the count to take a long time. They knew that they would lose those votes. And so it was a strategy to claim victory before those votes were counted. Because what we knew, like I said, in Pennsylvania, over 70% of the mail ballots 
were from Democrats and for President Biden. They knew that if the election day votes were counted first, it would show Donald Trump with a lead. They could declare victory. And then as the mail ballots were counted, they would declare fraud. They would say we so, were so it was a, it, they knew in advance that that's how it would play out. Absolutely. And so and so Trump had was had been put up to this from an early an early stage. No question. Right. It wasn't just his insecurity on the night. It was probably over, b- both a bit of both, both yeah. insecurity and yeah. and an actual uh, uh, scheme, which is yeah. can describe a lot of things about Trump. Catch up with all episodes of The Weekend Show. There's almost a 100 of them now. Last week, Jennifer Machia joined us, and I highly recommend that one. Don't forget to support me and independent journalism at patreon.com slash 5-Minute News. Download the daily 5-Minute News podcast so you can find out what's happening around the world while you make your morning coffee. I'll be back next week with a brand new special guest and more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show with Midas Touch. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.